Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad that you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Song of Solomon, which is one of the most interesting books of the Bible, and we think that you will find it interesting too. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Song of Songs, chapter 6. We're going to be in chapters 6 and 7 today. So you know a lot of people have this idea of God, that he is this being distant in the universe. He's off in some corner pulling strings and running things. Or maybe some people also have a more sinister version of God. They think of him like, um, like that character on Star Trek, Star Trek Q. You ever know who I'm talking about? He's kind of this uh, malicious, uh, aloof, weird sort of character who uh, is constantly playing games with people's lives. But then you come into the Song of Songs, and we discover that God is nothing like that. We actually find a God in the Song of Songs that is highly social. He's intimately personal. He's deeply communal. He's, he's the first lover. He's the supreme lover. And we discover in the Song of Songs that his heart is actually beating for us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, it says, We love because he first loved us. And you see how that goes in that order? Our ability to love is in direct connection to our ability to receive his love for us. He lo- we, we love, why? Because he first loved us. He's the first lover. And I'm never able to genuinely love anyone else until I first receive his love for me and allow that to change me. But when I become convinced of his love for me, it literally changes me and turns us into lovers of the same magnitude. So today, as we look at the Song of Songs 6 and 7, we're going to hear Jesus literally singing love into our lives. And it's going to change us. If you allow his love song to resonate in your soul, it'll change you. Simply put, I'll put it this way. Loved people love other people. And God's people, Jesus' people, are the best loved people on the planet. We are positioned to love like anybody, like unlike anybody else. We're positioned to enjoy a level of community that's unrivaled by anything the world can produce. And we're positioned to love others with such a self-sacrificing kind of love that it leaves them marveling at the presence of God in our midst and asking, how can I have that? I want the God that you have. Because they see it in our love. Didn't Jesus say, they will know you are my disciples by your love? So are you ready? I want to ask you this morning. This is kind of a warning. But are you ready to hear Jesus speak to you in a way that you probably have not heard before? I'll, I'll confess up front that I'm a little awkward even in going through this. Because it, it rattles my cage. 
So if it's rattling mine, I bet it'll rattle yours as well. But remember something. We're looking at the Song of Songs allegorically. That's important to remember. In other words, we're looking at it as, as a representation of Jesus' special relationship with his people. And so the male character in the Song of Songs represents Jesus. And the female character in the Song of Songs represents us. It represents God's people, okay? So you have to keep that in mind as we're reading this allegorically. So we come into chapter 6. We start with verse 4, and I'm going to read the whole text. But this is primarily Jesus speaking. And here's what Jesus, and I shouldn't even say he's speaking. He's singing. Jesus is singing this to us. And he says, you are beautiful, as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is missing. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be and eighty concubines and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or if the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? Hmm, how beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. O grace, your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are, and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like the clusters of fruit. I said, I'll climb the palm tree, I'll take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Then we sing in response, may the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. So can I begin by showing you a picture so that you can get a picture of what's going on here in chapters 6 and 7 that we just read? Um, it's the scene of a, of a wedding. You know how, can I, show you, can, I, is this, can I show you this picture? There we go. See, I'm showing you this picture partly because, well, 
I think this is the most beautiful bride ever in the history of brides. This is my wife, Karis. But, but I also want to illustrate a point. On October 1st, 1988, at Simpson Memorial Church in Nyack, New York, there was one bride, and it was Karis. And all the eyes were on her. Everybody wanted to know. They were all swooning over her, and tears of joy were shed about the, what a beautiful bride. And people wanted to see her in her dress, and they were snapping pictures of the bride. And it was all about the bride on that day, and it was her. And that's how weddings go, don't they? It's about the bride. Everybody makes a big deal, and as they should. That's what's happening here. In Song of Songs 6 and 7, you have this picture of the bride of Christ, which is us. There's only one bride, right? That's why, that's why church unity is so important, because Jesus is not a polygamist. He has one bride, see? So there's one bride in heaven. Here we are, and all of heaven joins in the chorus. You're so beautiful, adoring the bride. And then the husband the consummate groom, Jesus, he also is lavishing praise on his bride. You are so beautiful. He's pouring it out. He's singing. You get the picture? That's, that's what's happening here as we read these two chapters. And in this, Jesus says that there are four things that he sees that you are, four things that he sees in us. And then he also says in chapter 7, Four things that he sees where we're going. He gives us a vision for our future. And he says, here, here's where we're take, I'm taking you if you stay with me. And he gives us four parts of our future, four snapshots, if you will, into who we are becoming. Does this make sense? So four and four. First, Jesus says four things that he says to you. He looks at you and me and he says, you are beautiful. You're beautiful. He says in chapter 6, verse 4, you're beautiful as Terza, my darling, lovely as Jerusalem. Terza is a city in the north part of the country. Jerusalem is a city in the southern part of the country. So to say this, he's saying, you are beautiful from head to toe. He says that. You're beautiful from head to toe. Psalms 50 verse 2 says that Jerusalem is the, quote, perfection of beauty. And so, so Jesus is saying, you're the, you're the perfection of beauty. You're the very definition of what beautiful is. And, you know, and I'm a man, obviously, so, you know, I don't often think of myself as beautiful, but can I tell you that when I hear Jesus look at me and say, Doug, you're, you're beautiful. Who you are is beautiful. Like, there's, there's something in that that moves even crusty old me. Like, Wow. Jesus, you think that about me? He says, yes. Second thing Jesus says he sees, you are awesome. In the last part of, of verse 4, he says that we're majestic as troops with banners. You saw that line? And then over in verse 10, we're called majestic as stars in procession. You see these two, these two lines? Um, Bible scholars would call that an inclusio. It's a, it's a parenthetical statement, if you will. So you have one parenthesis, majestic as troops with banners, the other parenthesis, majestic as stars in procession, and then everything in between those parentheses is considered like one thought, okay? You're majestic, he says. This word majestic is used only three times in the whole Hebrew Bible. 
Two of them are right here. And then the third time, it's used in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 7, where it's referred to Jerusalem, where, where it's referring to the Babylonians and their impending destruction of Jerusalem. And there, the Babylonians are described as feared and dreaded. So the same Hebrew word gets translated majestic here, but in Habakkuk, it gets translated as feared and dreaded. And maybe some of your Bibles might also call, not use the word majestic. It might use the word awesome instead. Personally, I like the word awesome because it seems to get both of those ideas. Because obviously, Jesus is not afraid of you. That's not the concept. But, but he is in awe, like, wow. He's wowed. There's, a, there's that sense to it. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy kind of amazed by you. Number three, Jesus says, you are irresistible. Verses five through seven, Jesus says, turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. And then he goes on to describe how beautiful you are, the, the sheep and the goats and so forth, right? And essentially he's saying, wow, you're, you're just irresistible. I can't take my eyes off of you. And, and the idea here is this. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought about the impact that your praise and worship has on Jesus? You know, we often sing songs, you know, we sing them on Sunday mornings, and we just sing them because you think, oh, well, I guess that's church, and that's what you do, sing a few songs, hear a sermon, right? But, but have you ever stopped to consider the impact of your praise on the heart of Jesus? This morning, you guys sang so beautifully. What, what power, I think a powerful time of worship this morning. Love the, the sweetness here in the room, right? Did you, did you stop to consider the impact of that on Christ's heart? Is it possible that you and I could praise Jesus so much that Jesus would blush? That he'd be like, oh, you guys, okay, well, right? I wonder. I wonder. He says it here, turn, turn your eyes from me. You overwhelm me. See? Maybe that's something you might want to try this week in your own uh, private quiet time with the Lord, like, Try just praising him, praising him, praising him over and over. Try to just, you know, gush praise on Jesus until you sense him blushing. I, I've tried that. I've tried it, actually, and I haven't been able to really get there yet. I run out of words, and I start tripping over myself. But, man, wouldn't be a bad thing to give a shot for, right? So Jesus says you're irresistible, right? Um, I think about the story of the woman in the, in the Gospels with the alabaster jar of perfume. You know, we often talk about her. She takes this super expensive perfume, breaks the jar completely, and anoints Jesus' feet with it and wipes his feet with her hair, you know? And you wonder, was Jesus at all awkward by that? Like, everybody's looking at him in the room. It's kind of interrupted dinner. I mean, and we know the disciples criticized the woman for it. Because they said, what a waste. And then Jesus, what did he do? He rebuked the disciples. He received her praise, did he not? Because he's obviously worthy of it. I'm not at all suggesting he's not. He's worthy of it. But I wonder, I wonder how Jesus would react to your extravagant gift of praise for him. And then number four, Jesus says you're unequaled. 
Verses 8 and 9, he says, we outshine 60 queens, 80 concubines, virgins without number. He says that we are his one and only dove, his one and only, his unique one, his perfect one, he says. It reminds me of what God said to Moses after he rescued Israel from Egypt. God said to them in Exodus chapter 19, he said, I carried you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. Out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's, it's as though God is saying, you know, I own everything, but I'd give it all up to have you. Right? The whole earth is mine, but, but you, you'll, be, you'll be mine, my treasured possession. Could there be a greater privilege than to know that I am his treasured possession? And that he would say, Rouse, I own the whole shebang, but it is nothing if I can't have you. That's how he feels. Did you ever get the sense that maybe in the eyes of God, you are more important than you thought? You know, I want to encourage you something. I want to encourage you to try something this week. And I know it's a little different, but in the, in the back of our journals that we printed for this summer, and if you've not received one, we do have a couple still left, uh, so you can grab one because we're almost done, so let's unload them. But... Uh, at the very back of the journal, there's an appendix, and what I did was I took the words of Jesus from the Song of Songs and arranged them, some of them to the women and some of them to the men, just sort of as I thought words that might resonate more with men than they would, you know, with women, so, so it would resonate best with us. And take, take a moment and be quiet this week, and then just read what Jesus says to you. Read this as Jesus, read it out loud, as Jesus speaking to you. I think you will find that it changes, just changes um, your life. It does, because Jesus feels this strongly about you. Let him tell you in his own words how he feels about you. It'll rock your world, and that's what's happening in verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6, Bible scholars uh, don't really honestly know how to translate the Hebrew from those two verses. Um, it's the hardest, probably one of the hardest passages in the whole Old Testament to translate. The Hebrew is just very weird. And so you get, you get scholars that are all over the place on exactly what words are being said there. However, most of them agree with this. They agree that the, the idea that's being presented is that, that they're expressing extreme passion, like just unrivaled passion. The heat has been turned up, right? It is just, it's getting whoo, like really close in here. Extreme passion. And is that not the case? I mean, you hear Jesus say these things to you. Does it not make you feel a little awkward and a little overwhelmed? At least this starts to sink in. It changes your life, and it takes you away. And in the text, you see the Shulamite. She does the same thing. She's 
caught up in the praises of her groom, so much so that you come to verse 13, and her friends have to tell her to come back, come back, come back, oh Shulamite. It's like, come on, okay, I know you're caught off up there. Um, back to the real world, girl. Over here, we're over here. We, we need you, and we actually want what you have. In essence, that's what they're saying there. And then Jesus speaks to us as chapter 7 opens. And he then gives us a vision about where it is that we're going. So he's just told us these four things that he sees in us. And now he says, I want to tell you four things that describe where I'm taking you. You walk with me, and this is where we are going to go, girl. You know, several weeks ago, uh, Jordan Tatro loaned me a book by Donald Miller called Scary Close, and I've referenced it before, but perfect timing because the book is all about intimacy and relationships, and it's just perfect timing as I study the Song of Songs. And yesterday I was reading it, and he makes this point. All relationships, he says, are teleological, meaning every relationship is going somewhere. There's no, there was no relationship that's just static, sitting still. Every relationship is moving. It's either moving forward or moving backward, but it's moving. And that's why um, Song of Songs chapter 2, he says, catch for us the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. Remember that phrase? We looked at that a few weeks ago. The little foxes, those are the ones that just, the little things that erode the relationship, that just undermine it, right? And so you have to be vigilant about those things. Why? Because the relationship's not staying the same. It's either growing or it is crumbling, right? And so it applies in all of our relationships. Work, family, marriage, church. We need to be working on these. And it also applies in our relationship with Jesus. What's the plan? Where's Jesus taking us? Do you know? Do you know where you and Jesus are going? Have you ever thought about it? He said, I don't know, I just came to church, right? No, Jesus has a plan. There's a plan. Your relationship's moving somewhere. Are you working on it? I guarantee you Jesus is, and it is your relationship after all, isn't it? So if he's working on it, I ought to be working on it so that the two of us can be drawing closer together and moving forward. I think that's why the four E's are so important to our church. We have them on the wall out there, enjoy Jesus, encourage people, equip disciple makers, engage culture. If you notice, they're all about movement. They're all about going somewhere because we're not staying the same. We're not sitting still, right? We're going deeper with Jesus and we're going further into the world to rescue people from the grip of hell. So you say, what's Jesus' plan? Where's our relationship with him going? This is chapter 7. He opens up with chapter 7, verse 1, and he says that, see that phrase? He says, your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Some Bibles say the work of a craftsman's hands. What he's saying, in other words, is this. You are not an accident. You, your life is skillfully crafted There's a purpose in your life, a reason for your life, and it has been skillfully uh, crafted by the hands of the master. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, hallelujah. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, we are God's workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works. His workmanship. The word workmanship in the Greek is literally poema, poem. So you are God's poem. You're God's work of art. You know, one of the ways that you can love Jesus is to love who you are in Jesus and love what he's doing in you. He created you, and he's in the process of recreating you. And what he's doing in you takes his breath away. It ought to take yours away too. Are you amazed by what God is doing in you? Psalms uh, 139, 14 says, For I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So the psalmist is looking in the mirror saying, God, you did good work. You did good work, God. You know that? To say that I'm wonderfully and fearfully made, that's not bragging on me. That's bragging on the one who made me. But you reflect the designer. So to say, God, you did good, you know, whoa, God, good. It's a reflection not on me. It's a reflection on the designer. It's his work. Does that make sense? It gives praise to him, see? And I I love that, you know? I mean, I I admit, some days I, I look at myself, I think I'm kind of more like a Picasso painting, you know, with the two eyes on one side of my head, look like a flounder. But, you know, other days I go, okay, God, you're doing good work. I like the work you're doing. Praise your name. He's creating something in us. And you can almost feel that in Jesus' words as chapter 7 continues. Here's what he's making. Number one, he's making you noble and trusted. You see, he says there, he praises our beautiful sandaled feet. And we noted a few weeks ago that in this ancient culture, that women who were sandaled were considered trusted. It was a way of elevating them. And so, she's, so Jesus is saying, I trust you. I mean, when you think about ministry and you think about what we do, wouldn't you say it's pretty amazing that God entrusts this work into our hands? He says, I trust you. And then he goes on and he says, um, he calls us uh, the prince's daughter. You see that? Now, we've already noted that like the Shunammite, who is the woman in the song, she was not royalty. She's a commoner. She's a common girl who caught the eye of the king, and that's really the storyline of the song. And we've noted that it's also our story, isn't it? That you and I are the commoner who have caught the eye of the king of kings. We've captured his heart, right? This is our story. It's amazing. And now Jesus looks at you and he goes, you are noble. He has lifted you up. You are noble. We are part of heaven's royal family. Nobility runs in our veins. And Jesus is literally in the process of teaching you and me how to reign with him. Number two says he's making us generous. The imagery in verses two and three all have to do with nurturing and giving and feeding. You see the images there? The goblet of wine, the mound of wheat, the breasts. These are all pictures of nurturing and feeding and sustaining. One of the things that happens when we become convinced of our royalty is it frees us to be generous. Listen, those of the poverty mindset can't be generous because they never feel like they have enough. 
And, and those who feel like they're victims, they will always be takers because they always feel that somebody owes them something. But Jesus casts a whole new vision for us. You are nobility. You're not a victim. You're not a pauper. You are noble, part of the royal family of heaven. And our Father, the King, He owns everything. And He's teaching us how to step into our divine assignment as members of this royal family. And one of the things that we do is we exercise justice with generosity. The Bible tells us things like, freely you've received, freely give. To whom much is given, much is required. We love because, well, he first loved us. God told Abraham he would bless the whole world through him. God called Israel a light to the nations. Jesus calls us, the church, a city on a hill. So the concept is all throughout Scripture. We're blessed to be a blessing. God calls us to be givers, not takers. And we're learning how to actually take the resources of heaven that are at our disposal as the royal family and dispense them to the world around us. That's what royal people do. Number three, Jesus is making us protective. In verse four, her neck is like an ivory tower and her nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. And we've already noted that he's not saying that her nose looks like a tower. But we've noted instead that in the the Hebrew mindset that these images convey feelings, how you're making me feel. And so uh, scholars believe that this Tower of Lebanon, that it actually was a real tower located in the northern part of the country, and it was set up as an outpost to actually look out for any invasions from enemies that might come from the north. So the tower is a protective, it's a defensive position, see? And you think about that's kind of what they do, don't they? You look out, you're looking for any attackers, and he says, you're, you're, you're this tower. See, allegorically speaking, Jesus says, you stand tall, you stand firm, and you protect. One of the privileges that we have as heaven's royal family is to protect the weak, the vulnerable, and to restore them to health and vitality. You notice how we're just other-centered, not self-centered? Because that's how royalty behaves. We're here for the betterment of others. Jesus envisions us as not only being the most generous people, not only being the most like loving people on the planet, the most generous people on the planet, and the most protective people on the planet. And then lastly, Jesus says he's elevating you. He's elevating us. In verse 5, you notice our head is crowned like Mount Carmel. Our hair is like royal tapestry, he says. And not only that, what's more, the king is held captive in the tresses of our hair. It's uh, pretty amazing, isn't it, that we have captivated him, that we have stolen his heart and thrown away the key. He's mine. I'm his. But here's the deal, see, in stealing, his, in stealing the heart of the king, I have risen in rank. True? I'm no longer the pauper that I once was because I have stolen the heart of the king. The apostle Paul seemed to think it was true. In 2 Timothy 2.12, he said, if we endure, we will also reign with him. 
The same concept is also found in Genesis 1.28, Romans 5.17, Romans 8.17, 1 Corinthians 4.8, Revelation 20, verse 6. In other words, this is not a, a passing thought in the Bible. It's, it's pretty central to the theme of Scripture. In Genesis, we were created and we were given a mandate to reign, but we abdicated our responsibilities when we sinned. That's what happened. And we actually gave our authority that was given to us, we gave that over to the devil. He took it. But friends, the good news, the message of Jesus is he got the keys of hell back when he conquered death and the grave, and now he hands those keys to you and to me. You see that? So he's teaching us how to reign with him. Can you see that being a Christian is so much more than just going to church and being a nice person? Ugh, what, a, what a limp version of what Jesus wants to do in your life and mine. Wow. I mean, the vision that Jesus has for us is just, it leaves me speechless. You know, it sounds goofy, I know, but... In my little brain, the only way that I can say it is that it's like, like, you're way cooler than you think you are. But it's not because of you, it's because of what Jesus is doing in you. See, he's the coolest part, isn't he? So I think about that in ministry. This, I know it sounds simple, but this really changed how I minister a few years ago. And it's just this simple phrase, Jesus is the best thing I've got. He's the best I got. I don't have lights and a show and smoke and mirrors and a billion dollars and all of that. I have Jesus. And, and friends, that's what you have if you're in Christ. And we have this privilege as God's people to carry his presence with us anywhere we go. Just like ancient Israel did. What do they do? They carry the ark. You've got the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. You and I, we're not doing the literal ark, but we carry the presence of God. And that is what the world needs more than anything. They need to know this God who has captured our hearts and this God who has actually allowed us to capture his heart. See, and when you're invited to follow Jesus, like this is what you're being invited into. You might ask, why? Well, the answer is simply because Jesus likes it. That's what he says in verse 6. How beautiful you are, and how pleasing, oh my love, with your delights. Jesus is so thrilled by what he sees happening in your life. So thrilled by what he sees, by where he sees he's taking you. I mean, he, he can't wait. He's excited. So how do we respond? Look at verse 10, and this is how we end. She says, after all of that, I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. Mm. See, it's almost as though after hearing not almost, it is. After hearing the adoring praise of this groom, this bride finally gets it. She finally receives it. Oh, I see it now. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. I am his 
and he is mine. And the same is true in your life as well as mine. That if you would allow Jesus to pour out his affection and his love upon you, get past the awkward. That's one of the things I love about the Song of Songs is that that it uses language that you and I don't usually use. That'd be safe to say. You know, it's just, it's just different language. And it's in a song. And so it has the capacity to, to break past some of our barriers, to break past some of the, you know, our excuses. And, but if you'll allow it, let Jesus sing his song, his love song to you. Let, it, let that happen. And you will be able to say just what this woman says in verse 10. Oh, I see. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. God actually wants me. Wow. What a concept. Isn't that crazy? Have you ever heard Jesus talk like that to you before? I know I haven't. His desire is for me. You know, I, uh, one of my favorite things I get to worship team, we can come. One of my favorite things I get to do uh, is, um, you know, do weddings. And they're, they're, they're a lot of fun. I actually love weddings and funerals, believe it or not, as a pastor, um, for different reasons. But at the wedding, a lot of times, you know, I'm standing up at the front with the groom, and the bride, she comes in the door. She has her big moment, right? And uh, usually at that point, right, everybody stands up and they turn around and they all look at the bride. You know how that goes. In that moment, I usually like to look at the groom. At that point, it's just the groom and me standing there. And everybody else is focused on her. And the groom... Over the years, I've seen guys cry, weep. I've seen knees knock. We literally had a guy once years ago in our church in Pennsylvania, fainted, literally fainted. We actually had to dismiss everybody. And they went off to the, to the reception, and we had to, you know, put the Epsom salts and get the guy up. But we just did, did this ceremony without people watch. But he was just, he was out. There's something so overwhelming, right, in that moment, I think, for a groom. And that's, that's a powerful moment, is it not? And she's so beautiful. She's just so beautiful. And she's stolen his heart. It's like all everything comes together in this one little moment right there. you know that Jesus feels that way about you? Do you know what all he's done? Do you know the story of the cross? The story of the incarnation that God, that he became flesh. He walked among us. That he allowed himself to be put on a cross. He died in our place to pay for our sin so that we could be restored with him. 
Jesus wasn't content with a broken relationship. He wasn't content to just stay in heaven without you and to write you off as a loss. He said, no, I love you too much for that. And he came and he got us and he paid a supreme price that you and I will never be able to fathom in order to have you. And Jesus, the the consummate groom, standing at the front of the church, if you will, in heaven, his heart is absolutely stolen by us, by us, captured by us. And his vision for us is so grand. I'm convinced of this, my friends, that this right here is the God that you've been looking for. This is the God that you have been looking for. And you discover that he's been there all along. That he was not ever hiding. And it's him. You want a God who is this intimately personal and close, who loves you like this. You don't want the God that is distant in the universe and acts like Q and acts like all the other things that a lot of people say he is. He's, that's, and the truth is, that's not the real God. This is the real God. At the heart of your Bibles, you see the heartbeat of God in the Song of Songs, and it is beating for you, and it is beating passionately. And now, the only response is for you and me to do what verse, what verse 10 says. My lover is mine, and his desire is for me. So Jesus, if that's what you want to have with us, then we're saying to you today, that's what we want to have with you. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We hope that today's message was a blessing to you. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org.